Does the study of transaction cost have a moral dimension? You bet. And today we're going to talk about why. Welcome to the third episode of Tidy C. Like all they talk about is a system where there are no transaction costs. It's an imaginary system. There always are transaction costs. When it is costly to transact, institutions matter. And it is costly to transact. Let's start with the letter from last week. I read it, but let me read it again to make sure we're all on the same page. Nathaniel S. wrote, starting the letter, Are congestion taxes an effective way to overcome transaction cost in pertaining to efficient use of roads? Probably not the best. There is no externality with congestion because everyone stuck in traffic has moved to the harm. Those who could be held liable for causing congestion are not those who pay for a variable toll, but those who come later. End quotation from the letter. Well, Russ Roberts and I did a podcast on this question, and all I managed to do in thinking about it was to confuse myself. Look, the real problem is, (laughs) well, you guessed it, transaction costs. One way to solve the problem of wasteful queuing, and that's what this is. This is dead weight lost because people are queuing up to get something that they want. That is, many, many people want to get through a choke point in traffic. Not all of them can get through at the same time. We don't have a property rights or price mechanism of allocating that resource, and so we use queuing instead. Now, one way to solve the problem of wasteful queuing would be to have a reservation, like at a restaurant, or an appointment at a doctor's office. Those are the easy ways to reduce transaction costs, but that then you have a way of assigning a property right to a slot. On the road, no one has property rights to a slot. You can't make an appointment to drive on a traffic-free road. The effect that my decision to drive at a certain time has on others depends on the time and what others do in reaction to their expectations of what I'm going to do. So suppose that rush hour starts at 4.45 p.m. You really don't care when you drive. You could do it now or later. You're indifferent. But it's free, and so you get on the highway at 440, and things start to back up. I really, really need to get somewhere fast after my meeting ends at 5 p.m. And remember, rush hour starts at 445. You are going to get on the road at 440, which means you'll be on the road during rush hour. I can't get on the road before 5 p.m., but I really value getting somewhere fast. By the time I get on the highway at 5.05 p.m., traffic is all backed up. What we need is a way for the high-valued users to compensate the lower-valued users to stay off the road at congested times. Or what amounts to the same thing, we could charge a variable congestion tax But notice that it would have to be prospective. We can't charge based on the actual congestion. We have to guess at what congestion is going to be. The price needs to be high enough at 440 to keep you, the lower-valued user, away from getting on the highway in the first place. Charging the people who get on after 445 doesn't help much. It's already crowded. They no longer have the option to pay for clear roads, no matter how much they want to pay. They no longer have the option to pay for clear roads. They just have to pay extra for crowded roads, which doesn't accomplish much. So remember, they want to pay, and they'll pay quite a bit, for entrance onto an uncongested highway. But transactions cost and the lack of property rights prevent them from being able to make that agreement. I can't pay you to stay off the road, even though I value the use of the road more than you do, because you're already on the road. 
And so we all sit in traffic, even though the people who would pay to avoid congestion are willing to pay more than the reservation price of the people who would accept payment to drive later or earlier or take a bus to do something else. Well, moving now to the main body of our talk this week, last time I defined transaction costs as having three aspects, triangulation, transfer, and trust. But we need to take a step back. Before we can look at the details of transactions costs, we need to look at the big picture. Now, my friend Roger Congleton recently published a book entitled Solving Social Dilemmas, Ethics, Politics, and Prosperity. I want to recommend that book, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The thesis of the book is that a big part of the ability of citizens to capture the gains from cooperation depends on the ethical disposition of those citizens, and therefore of the entire nation or maybe whatever cultural group we're considering. As Congleton puts it, prosperity is at root an ethical phenomenon. It's very interesting. Prosperity is at root an ethical phenomenon. Now, Ronald Coase famously put this problem in a setting where transactions costs were front and center. And of course, I like that kind of treatment. So let's listen for just a minute to a discussion between Ronald Coase and Richard Epstein on a podcast from Liberty Fund's Intellectual Portrait Series. Uh, economists haven't much used it, and yet they ought to, because, again, if we go back to Adam Smith, Adam Smith said that division of labor or specialization is the basis for increased production. In the market. That's right. And lower transaction costs enable one to have more specialization, therefore more production. Either by firms or by spot transactions. By, by whoever it is. Mm -hmm. And so our standard of living really depends to a large extent on the level of transaction costs that we ought to be interested in. Well, that's interesting. When you talk about Adam Smith and his notion of an evolutionary kind of propriety, that is, we feel good when we see someone else do something that's good for society, we feel bad when we see someone do something bad for society, and we internalize that. We actually have an impartial spectator or a man in the breast who communicates to us the approval or disapproval that we could expect if someone else were watching us. And so as a result, propriety tends to encourage things that are good for the society, and disapproval discourages things that are bad for the society. Alfred Marshall, in his Principles of Economics, which was first published in 1890, actually has an interesting discussion of transactions cost. He doesn't call it that, but an interesting discussion of transactions cost, where he notes that there are clusters of businesses. And this is not a hoteling point where they cluster together for reasons of competitive retail. Instead, the reason they cluster together is that the labor market and knowledge of what it takes to work in that industry benefits in terms of lower cost of having concentrations of the same kind of business in the same place. So he uses examples of cutlery in Sheffield, straw plating in Bedfordshire, pottery in Staffordshire, metalworking in Birmingham. So very early on, we have Adam Smith and his view of propriety as a way of reducing transaction cost, we have Alfred Marshall by 1890 who clearly recognizes the concept as being important in industrial organization. Now, one of the most important 
early scholars in the 1920s and 1930s of transaction costs was John R. Commons. And his interest was in institutions. And what Commons did was something very interesting. He took the two different worlds that he saw in classical economics and noted that they were linked by something that he called the transaction, that is, trans-action. So on one hand, we have the behavior of consumers, and they want things, and Commons called this hedonic economics. And on the other side, we have production, where firms, artisans are producing things that they think that people want. Well, what is the link? What is the feedback mechanism? Let me read what Common said. Individual actions are really transactions instead of either individual behavior or the exchange of commodities. The shift is a change in the ultimate unit of economic investigation. The smallest unit of the classic economist was a commodity produced by labor. The smallest unit of the hedonic economist was the same or similar commodity enjoyed by ultimate consumers. The outcome in either case was the materialistic metaphor of an automatic equilibrium, analogous to the waves of the ocean, but personified as seeking their level. But the smallest unit of the institutional economist is a unit of activity, the transaction, with its participants. Transactions intervene between the labor of the classic economist and the pleasures of the hedonic economist, simply because it is society that controls access to the forces of nature, and transactions are not the exchange of commodities, but the alienation and acquisition between individuals of the rights of property and liberty created by society, which must therefore be negotiated, negotiated between the parties. Before labor can be produced, consumers can consume, or commodities can be physically exchanged. So that was in Institutional Economics, article called Institutional Economics in the American Economic Review in 1931. Now, by 1937, Ronald Coase had begun to talk about the costs of using the market as opposed to the cost of organizing transactions internally within a firm. And Coase famously asked a very important question. That question was, if markets are so great, why are there firms? Because economists, just like Common said, economists talk about equilibrium and it's like water, it seeks its own level and we find equilibrium. To which Coase said, all right, markets and prices can organize all these transactions. If markets are so great, why are there firms? So the transaction cost concept was formally proposed by Coase in 1937 in his article, The Theory of the Firm, to explain the existence of something that was mysterious, the existence of these little islands of socialism, of command economies within a market economy. So transactions occur via market mechanism. They incur costs of negotiation, recontracting, triangulation, transfer, and trust. So particularly the cost of searching for exchange partners, making and enforcing contracts, those are very expensive. Now, there was a lot more work in transactions cost economics leading up to the shared Nobel Prize between Oliver Williamson and Douglas North in 1993, who shared the Nobel Prize. For Williamson, transactions costs are frequency, specificity, uncertainty, limited rationality, and opportunistic behavior. I've always found uh, Williamson's description to be interesting, but it's kind of cumbersome. It's detailed. The language is hard to get into. For North, 
his main concerns about transaction cost were measurement, enforcement, ideological attitudes and perception, and the size of the market. Remember that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, and so extent of the market is likely limited by transaction costs. And so North clearly was influenced by his longtime colleague, Yoram Barzell, who I talked about last time. Now, here's the background problem, and this links what Coase said about our ability to elaborate division of labor with Williamson and North and Commons, the sort of background conditions. If we tell the truth and keep our promises, the cost of transactions are dramatically reduced. There's still problems of division of knowledge, but norms and ethical dispositions make a big difference. The big problem that we face is that pathological ethical dispositions are very hard to change. If people are opposed to the very idea of exchange or of profit, or if they don't place any value on keeping your promises, it's going to be very difficult to negotiate mutually beneficial exchanges. So the big facile solution usually is something called education. Everyone who says, well, what we need to do is just educate people. That means they disagree with you and you don't have a very good argument. So you want to force them to agree with you through education. It's really hard to use education to change deeply seated cultural norms. So the problem is, and I'm reminded of the centrality of role of internalized mores for Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the people who wrote a very interesting uh, analysis of the problem of mores was uh, Rousseau in Du Contrat Social in Book 2 in Chapter 12. And this is what Rousseau said about different categories of law and, in effect, transaction costs. There's three kinds of law, political law, civil law, and criminal law. And then let me quote now from Rousseau in Book 2 of Du Contrat Social. Along with these three kinds of laws goes a fourth, most important of all, which is inscribed not on tablets of marble or brass, but on the hearts of the citizen. It forms the real constitution of the state. It takes on new powers every day because people learn uh, what norms are. It restores or replaces other laws when they decay or die out keeps a people in the spirit in which it is established and gradually replaces authority by the force of habit. So I am speaking of mores, of customs, above all of public opinion, an element in the situation that our political theorists don't recognize, though success in everything else depends on it. That's really interesting. That was quite a while before Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, but it's exactly the same kind of view that What determines the ability of the nation to function is to be the underlying set of norms, mores, and customs. And those have a lot to do with the transactions cost of either encouraging or preventing us from cooperating. Well, that means it's time for this week's economics joke. How many economists does it take to change a light bulb? I find quite a few answers to this. Uh, I'll only give what I thought were the best ones. How many economists does it take to change a light bulb? Five. One to make the change and four to hold all else constant. None. If the light bulb needed to be changed, the market would have done it already.
One, if she's the head of the central bank because she holds up the light bulb and waits for the entire world just to revolve around her. Seven, with a confidence interval of plus or minus 11. That's not the point. Government should use deficit spending to change all of the light bulbs, whether they needed to be changed right now or not, because the injection of money is going to shift the IS curve sharply upward and to the right, creating prosperity. None. The only thing that's keeping the light bulb from changing itself is intrusive government regulation. None. The effect of darkness was already capitalized in asset prices, and so resources are already allocated to their most efficient uses. Well, it depends on the wage rate, the amount of effort induced by the incentives of the contract. And finally, none, because look, it's getting brighter on its own. Everything's okay. Everything's definitely getting brighter. Well, now it's time for letters. Letter we got this week asked what I think is an interesting question, one that I've worked on. Um, let me ask it here. Question simple. Does Starbucks have surge pricing? Now, you know about surge pricing. Uber uses surge pricing to ration the available cars in times when many, many people all want to get a ride at the same time. It's also a way, in the case of Uber, of getting more cars on the road. So the question is, does Starbucks have surge pricing? Thanks for listening. This is Tidy C.